Welcome to The Middle Way. I'm Dr. Matthew Goodman, a clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Southern California. This podcast is about bridging the divide between human beings and discovering innovative and practical solutions to the world's problems based on the principles of interconnectedness, common humanity, and radical compassion. Thank you so much for being here. Today, I'm speaking with Maya Salovitz. Maya is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Unbroken Brain, which is widely regarded as an important advance in thinking about the nature of addiction and how to cope with it, both personally and politically. She's written for numerous publications from the High Times to the New York Times, including Time, The Washington Post, The Guardian, Vice, Scientific American, and The Atlantic. And she's the author or co-author of five other books. With Dr. Bruce Perry, she wrote the classic work on childhood trauma, The Boy Who Has Raised a Dog, and also the book Born for Love, Why Empathy is Essential and Endangered. She's won awards from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the Drug Policy Alliance, the American Psychological Association, and the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology for her 30 years of groundbreaking writing on addiction, drug policy, and neuroscience. I wanted to have Maya on the podcast to provide a new lens through which we can treat and understand social symptoms. One of the most important things that I've learned as a clinical psychologist is that people don't change their behavior through shame and blame. People change when they're treated with acceptance, compassion, and understanding. And this is as much true on the individual level as it is collectively. Our current collective policy towards drug abusers is a punitive one. We shame and blame addicts oftentimes by putting them in jail. This is the go to your room and think about what you've done approach. And the problem is, as Maya and I will talk about, is that it's not only, re it's not only ineffective, but it reinforces the sense that there's something wrong with me, that I'm a bad person. And that's often why people are using drugs in the first place. These approaches are typically counterproductive, although well-intended. Instead of this punitive approach, Maya and myself advocate for a more compassionate approach that focuses on meeting a person where they're at and letting them know that they're of value and that they're loved no matter what. And I think this approach to treating addiction has relevance to other aspects of our society as well, which is really what this podcast is all about. We know from the science that we can't shame and blame people into changing their behavior. You'll hear at the end of the episode that Maya and I both agree that blaming and shaming people into wearing masks, for example, only backfires and creates more resistance. And while we recorded this episode many months ago, before vaccines were such a hot topic, I'd go a step further and say that shaming, blaming, punishing, canceling, criticizing, or ostracizing are not scientifically sound ways to get people to change their behavior. If we want someone to understand our point of view, we have to also understand theirs. We have to meet them exactly where they are at with compassion 
Enjoy this episode. Maya, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So the first question I wanted to ask you was just around your own story and how you got interested in working and writing in the field of addiction. Sure. So, I mean, so basically I had always been torn between, do I want to be like a scientist or writer? So science writers kind of in the uh, middle and what I realized very quickly was that um, writing about addiction is often horrible. There's lots of myths and there's lots of misinformation and there's lots of um, really propaganda. So I also wanted to find out like what the heck had happened and how I had gone from being sort of a gifted student to being like, um, you know, shooting heroin. So, um, so it was basically a combination of all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, struggling with addiction yourself. Um, what, what changed for you? You know, was, was there a turning point and what were, what were some of the approaches that were helpful for you, whether it was through a treatment center or something you discovered on your own? Right. So, I mean, I definitely was not a good candidate for any of the tough confrontational stuff. And, um, I was really terrified of that and that made me avoid treatment for a while. Um, I was briefly on methadone, which I now realize I was on way too low a dose and um, the way the program was structured was, was not particularly helpful. So um, although we now know that um, methadone and buprenorphine cut the overdose death rate by 50% or more, from opioid addiction, which is especially important in an environment filled with fentanyl. Um, at that time, um, you know, I just was told that, oh, you're just substituting one addiction for another and, um, you know, it's not really recovery and all this stuff that I now know is nonsense. But anyway, I was on that for about six months and then um, I did a sort of traditional 28 day, 12 uh, step abstinence program. Um, which um, was helpful for me at the time. I was basically desperate at that point um, and had realized that, you know, something had to change. I mean, I was, I was just so skinny. I looked older than I look now. Um, and I was, um, you know, just so depressed and upset and uh, not to mention facing a 15 to life sentence because of drug dealing. So a lot of stuff was going on. Um, I don't like to frame it, however, as it was hitting bottom because I feel that that is only a retrospective narrative device. It's not a scientific or predictable thing. And when we have policies that are designed to force people into so-called hitting bottom by like arresting them and humiliating them and shaming them and doing all this kind of stuff, we know that that does harm. So, um, uh, but I certainly did have a turning point where I realized like, wow, um, I need help. And I went, I had a court date the next day. I went there and I had, um, I, my dad was with me and he took me up to my mom's house and then we got into the, the rehab. Um, I now have some disagreements with um, this notion that the 12 steps should be the only way to recover. Um, I don't believe that. Um, but since that was what I was told and that's what the medical people were telling me was the absolute truth, 
I was like, okay, well, this seems really weird to me, but I shall try. Hmm. I really appreciate your vulnerability and being willing to share your own story, which I'm sure many people out there will connect to. And, you know, you talk about sort of the normal or traditional approach to drug treatment, which involves a lot of shame for people. Um, yeah. And it tends to be, you know, a pretty punitive approach, especially when we're talking about how drugs are um, criminalized and what ends up happening to people who are struggling with addiction. But I'm wondering if you could help tease out for us kind of what the, you know, normal or traditional approaches are to drug treatment. Um, and then we'll kind of get into some of the harm reduction stuff and some of the approaches right. that you sort of advocate for. Sure. So um, basically, traditionally in American treatment, there's been three modalities. Methadone, um, which had its own very isolated, literally ghettoized um, system of clinics. Um, the thing called therapeutic communities, which was based on the cult called Synanon, which involves humiliating, confronting, and trying to break people's personalities down in a very intense residential living setting that unfortunately often turns into cults. Um, but that, any 18 month uh, addiction treatment or longer in the US tends to be based on this idea that like, we'll confront you, we'll humiliate you, we'll break your personality down, and then we'll rebuild you into a nice sober citizen. Um, so, um, so that was the second modality. And then the third one is the traditional 12-step uh, Minnesota model, which is basically um, teaching you about the 12 steps, um, teaching you that um, you're powerless and that you need to find higher power and you need to confess and pray and uh, make amends. So it's a very, very moral model at the same time as they're telling you, well, this is a disease and yet treating it unlike any other disease, because if you told me to like pray and confess um, for my depression, you know, I would not, uh, I would not accept that as treatment for depression. I don't think it's appropriate. And what I do think is the case that since 12-step programs and the community and the support and the connection and the love that really are offered to many people there, I think that's fabulous. It just needs to be divorced from addiction treatment. For one, you can get that for free in pretty much most church basements. So why should we pay for you to be indoctrinated into that when we're paying $1,000 or more a day for you in a so-called hospital 28-day setting? Um, that to me makes no sense. I think that in that setting, what you should get is cognitive behavioral or motivational enhancement or some of these other therapies that are evidence-based that don't have issues around morality or higher powers or spirituality or any of that. And then they can say, look, social support is super critical to recovery. A lot of people find it in 12-step groups. You might wanna try it. You should try a few groups because they're very different from each other. Um, but if that's not your cup of tea, we got other stuff. Can you explain for our listeners a little bit about sort of either motivational enhancement or just so kind of the non-confrontational approaches about accepting people and meeting people where they're at in their own journey. Yes. Yes. Well, um, the thing about addiction is that it is involved, it involves these cycles of shame and self-hatred and self-blame um, 
that are kind of only relieved by the substance. And then of course that makes it worse because then you blame yourself for that. And it's like all of these double binds and bad cycles and all kinds of very unfortunate um, experiences. So what motivational enhancement does is it basically says, okay, let's talk about what your goals are. What do you want to do? What would you, like if you could have the ideal life, what would it be and how can you get there? And are drugs in the way? If drugs aren't in the way, then we're not gonna focus on that. We're gonna focus on like what is in the way. Um, if you start to find out over the course of therapy that it actually drugs are in the way, then you can work on that. But it's not focused on you must be abstinent and you must be abstinent from everything. Um, it's just focused on how do we get you to a healthier and more productive and, and happier life? And I think a lot of the problem with the punitive approach is that like, you're telling people, you gotta give up drugs, you gotta give up sex, you gotta give up this, you gotta give up that. It's all about negatives. It's all about, um, you gotta stop this, we gotta take this away. It's not about what is in it for me? You know, why should I go through this horribly painful withdrawal process and this horribly painful sense of the only thing that makes me comfortable and safe is being taken away unless there's another thing, a better thing on the other end. And so what harm reduction and motivational enhancement and, and all of these other more compassionate approaches um, stress is that uh, what is better for you um, is what we want for you. Not we need to control you and we need to take this stuff away from you and this is illegal and bad and wrong. It's like, okay, what would make your life more productive and happier? How can you improve your relationships? Like people want often pretty much the same thing. They want strong social relationships. They want their family. They want to be able to support themselves in a meaningful way. So how do we get people towards that? And how do we get people to have a sense of joy in life. And if you can do those things, you can help people recover. And that's like, you know, this is why addiction treatment is so difficult because individuals vary tremendously. And though on those dimensions, we are all pretty similar. It's like, you know, you might find um, collecting cars um, as your passion and I might like to do swing dancing or something, but it's like if you force one of those on somebody else, like it's not going to work. It's like, you know, um, I might like lifting weights, you might like running, but, you know, whatever works for you is not necessarily what's going to work for someone else. Um, it's pretty clear that like physical exercise is super good for recovery, but, you know, it's really hard to get yourself to do it. And you have to like, I always think of it as being like the opposite of drugs. So you get the punishment first and then you get the pain rather than the reverse. And if you can realize that, then you can get yourself to like go to the gym, do your thing. And then you're like, ah, yeah, this is cool. Um, it's just that bit in the, you know, getting yourself there and actually doing it that can be, you know, challenging obviously. But so what the, all of these approaches treat people as human beings who have normal motivations and desires and, and who um, who we want the best for and who want the best for themselves. And, you know, there's some sociopaths out there, yes. But for the vast majority of people, um, if you help them love themselves and help them um, uh, better themselves and, and care, just, I mean, one of the things about addiction that's so terrible is that everybody thinks you're so awful. They're like crossing the street to avoid you. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I want you to be 
happier and better. And I'm not going to try to control you. I don't want to take away your drugs. I don't want to do anything. I just like, here's a clean needle because like, we don't want you like shooting the dirty needles because you could get AIDS. And so um, when you approach somebody with that compassionate, non-judgmental stance of like, I'm a human being, you're a human being, we care, we want you to be okay. People who don't care about themselves that much because they are so oppressed or um, hurting or whatever, um, when they are approached with that compassionate um, stance, then a lot of amazing things can happen. You know, we just get so focused on the drug and so focused on this idea that that's the problem. Well, to people with addiction, the drugs are the solution. Like you're taking away their solution. So like, how are you going to help? Yeah. I love the way that you're framing that. And, um, you know, you're talking about just, it's, it can be as simple as just like showing up and being compassionate to someone and loving someone, even before we get to all the tech technicalities about what are we going to do? We're going to CBT this, or we're going to replace it with methadone, et cetera. But first and foremost, people need to feel like they're seen, they're accepted for who they are. And you mentioned also like validating why they're using in the first place, which is to deal with pain. Um, so we know that that works, that that's what people need on an individual level. And I'm so interested in how this kind of scales and translates on a societal level in our current system. We've really favored that punitive approach, but what would this look like on a societal level? And maybe that might help us segue a little bit into kind of the harm reduction approach. Sure. So, I mean, so basically, right. This segues perfectly into the harm reduction because our current drug policy is focused on, we're going to arrest people. We want to reduce the number of drugs. We want to like, you know, a drug-free world or this kind of thing. Um, harm reduction is like, how can we reduce the greatest harm to the greatest number of people? And people are always going to use drugs. They always have, you know, cats use catnip. Like it's like, it predates us evolutionarily. Like it's in every human society. The idea that like some intoxicants are okay, but others are bad, like racism and whatever you want to call it, like uh, bias against uh, others is baked into our drug laws and the way we see what is a drug and what isn't. So what harm reduction says is, I don't care if you get high. I care if you get hurt or if you hurt somebody else. And so the idea then becomes is what policy can we create that will, um, you know, reduce harm. So we can use clean needles, we can teach safe injection, we can um, have places where people can be safe, we can provide safer supplies, we can do all of this. And then everybody gets all freaked out because like, oh no, you're enabling people and you're gonna like um, make it so that they never get better and this and that. In reality, when you treat people respectfully, they begin to be able to treat themselves more respectfully. and. If they, ha if you provide other alternatives, people are much, you know, like, for example, if you actually provide free heroin in a pharmaceutical um, dose and setting, um, people are just as likely, if not more likely to become abstinent than if they're constantly chasing that thing out in the streets. Because what happens is when you actually provide a safe supply to people, their lives suddenly get really boring. Because like now that thing that you're spending all your time chasing, you got it and you got the dose you want and it's there. 
what are you going to do with the rest of that time? Maybe I can hang out with my family. Maybe I can get a job. Like, so it's really, um, it's all very counterintuitive when you've been sort of raised in the drug war. But if you just think about the way we handle other problems, we generally recognize that like people want to feel good and be okay. <laughs> and if we can facilitate that rather than disable them, um, we can um, get people to, um, you know, to, to live better and, and have healthier lives. It's just like we get so caught up in the drugs are bad, this is immoral, um, that we forget that, you know, killing people to save them is not really the best kind of policy. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's such a fear there um, that you know, this harm reduction approach would actually enable people, but we really have to ask ourselves, like, how well is our current approach working? How well have we been able to actually treat addiction in our society and, and all the evidence? Also, do we want to disable people? Like the opposite of enabling people is disabling them. No, right. I mean, people have disabilities and, and that's cool and, and we should not be ableist but we should also not deliberately try to make people's lives harder. What's especially important about this is that addiction is defined as compulsive behavior that continues despite negative consequences. So adding more negative consequences is not, is by definition, not the way to fix it. And yet that's exactly what we do. So what we need to do is provide ways to attract people um, into healthier um, and more happy um, lifestyles. The problem with that, of course, is that brings up, we need housing, we need food, we need childcare, we need a lot of things to make this very unequal society more equal and to make people have meaningful alternatives to getting high all day. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so that rapidly becomes political, but, um, that's just the way it is. And that's why um, addiction um, is often such a political football. Yeah. There are other countries who have really taken up this harm reduction approach. I think Portugal and Switzerland are kind of prime examples of that. And, you know, I want to kind of circle back to maybe what they're doing, but on the political end of things, these programs are very popular in those countries. And I believe because they're really making their communities better. And so we should be looking at the data and actually using that as a selling point to people who might be opposed and say, hey, actually, you know, this is reducing, you know, the amount of drug use or people using illegally on the streets. It's people in the community are feeling safer. There's a reduction in crime. I mean, all of this can actually be leveraged around, you know, right. changing I mean, policy. because people, you know, the thing is that like, it's hard in our much more unequal society to realize the true benefits of harm reduction. Um, because for example, let's say you are um, providing a safe injection facility, which is great. And all those people who are using that facility are not shooting up on the street at that time. They might be shooting up on the street later when that place is closed because they still don't have a place to live. Mm -hmm. um, so um, it is, it is complicated and this is why it's very hard to get people to see like, oh, well, you know, if you put up a safe injection site, the kids are gonna, I mean, if you look at the people who are going into a safe injection facility, it's not like they're rock stars. <laughs> you know, um, it's not like it's glamorizing it for, um, you know, for children. In fact, like what's more horrifying for children is to see people lying on the street and everybody just ignoring them. Yeah. Um, 
you know, um, so the both Portugal and Switzerland have made important contributions to understanding that yes, if you treat people respectfully, if you treat drug use like a health problem, if you provide places that are welcoming, you can reduce street crime, you can reduce uh, public injecting, you can definitely reduce the spread of HIV and other bloodborne illnesses, you can make people healthier, you can make them more productive and um, have them um, be more there for their families. So it's like, it's win all around, but part of the problem is that um, when you look at like say an abstinence rehab, everybody there is abstinent. And they look like they're, you know, healthy again, and they're doing, you know, they're. When you look at a harm reduction program, people look just like they are still using because they are. Um, and the ones that totally don't stand out are just not visible because they totally don't stand out. So in the abstinence place, you don't see the like, you know, sixty percent, eighty percent of people that dropped out and who are back in that state. But you do see those people at the harm reduction place, mm -hmm. and so the way it looks on the surface can be very deceiving because um, in the harm reduction place, the people who are doing super well are not all that visible. And in the abstinence place, the people who are not doing well are not visible. And so it, it presents a public image issue that is very hard to get people to understand. So I want to ask you one more question and I have two in mind, but I'm leaning towards one. So one of the questions I had in mind, you're framing addiction as a learning disorder or a developmental issue. And I find that fascinating and would love to pick your brain on that. Um, if we don't have time for that, I'm going to really encourage our listeners to pick up your new book, um, which is going to explore that in more detail. But while I have you here, there's another question and, you know, I, I really want to, um, take advantage of, of having your, your brain on this, because I think you'd provide an interesting perspective, but you wrote, um, a article called, uh, or referring to pandemic shaming and how this might backfire. Um, can you tell us what you mean by pandemic shaming and how could this potentially backfire? Right. Well, I mean, we're sort of, well, we're in a very weird transitional phase right now, but, um, you know, in the past, like you really had this impulse to like yell at people who weren't wearing masks or, um, you know, to be like, you know, just to use public rejection to get people to change their behavior. Um, and that can work fine if the behavior is something that's readily changeable. But say we created such a political situation where like wearing or not wearing a mask is kind of now a sign of identity rather than, hey, I'm just trying to protect myself from a respiratory disease. Um, so, um, you know, but shame, obviously like people try to do things to avoid shame, but at the same time, if the activity is one that you cannot avoid like social connection, um, shame is not going to stop people from seeking social connection in ways that may be dangerous during a pandemic. So instead, you need to work on reducing harm. So like, yes, wear a mask if you're going to be indoors with people, stay six, you know, all of these stuff is like harm reduction, because we're not going to say, okay, just go and live in a cage by yourself and don't interact with any other humans. Like, that is not realistic, just like it was unrealistic during AIDS to say, oh, just don't have sex. Um, because again, like 
all the shaming and all that kind of stuff is not going to stop the, you know, <laughs> primary drive of life. So it is, you know, um, yeah, but yeah, so this is why, um, you know, you might shame people into like wearing a seatbelt or something. Um, but if you, um, for other forms of harm reduction, you really need to work more on uh, carrots rather than sticks. Absolutely. Yeah. And unfortunately, the shaming and punitive approaches, not only are they not very effective, but they can actually be counterproductive and they can produce more of the behavior that we're trying to uh, yes. suppress or change in people. So definitely, definitely clear parallels there between, you know, wearing a mask and then also how we would approach people with addiction and trying to change their behavior. So yeah. this is something I'm so curious about, you know, across multiple aspects of society is how can we change the, our language or communication or even our policy to make, to take a more compassionate approach to people and what they're struggling with. That seems, you know, based on the science, that seems to be a more productive strategy than the shaming, blaming, canceling, yeah. criticizing, and sort of. Right. I mean, we have that evolutionary thing in us <laughs> to do that. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's very hard to see when that is a very bad tool and not use it because it seems like it should work. Um, and it's, you know, it is, it is difficult, but what, you know, when people's emotional survival is at stake, shaming them is not gonna change their behavior. Um, so you have to find ways for them to get that in less harmful ways. And that's, I mean, that's really what harm reduction is about. It's about, you know, finding ways to help people um, survive better and, and find their way, you know, in this world. <laughs> Absolutely. Maya, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, you have a new book. It's called Undoing Drugs. Um, where can people find you or find your work? And how can they uh, learn more about your, your writing? Sure. So um, you could go to mayasz.com, M-A-I-A-S like Sam, Z like zebra.com. I won't spell the rest of my last name because nobody else can either. And so, um, but that is my website and that will have information on, on where you can um, get the book and my other books and um, articles and, and stuff like that. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. And thank you for all the uh, amazing work that you've been doing for us. Thank you. Thank you so much again for listening. Remember that subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast is very much appreciated. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.